As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Extending research-based advocacy to all Nigerians forms a critical part of the NESG mandate. NESG mandate. At different times, the NESG conducts research-based advocacy by employing public education and community mobilization strategies. The diversification of this economy is very, very important. Research-based advocacy allows for social voice, prioritization, and bringing different actors together for dialogue to a sustainable and inclusive development in our country. In our country. Welcome to NESG Radio. This would be um, a very, very focused uh, session. Uh, the matters that we discussed will take into consideration some of the conversations had since morning. By way of introduction, um, let me establish a few things here. One, uh, the political, economic, and social disruptions of COVID-19. Um, lately, the civic protests tagged answers, and the riots that ensued um, actually exposed the inadequacies in our current uh, economic and governance systems. The purpose of this panel is to review that the concerns for lives and livelihoods and the business environment, both public and private sectors, is at a historical crossroads and we must find some ways in which we can discuss it. The first phase of the response by government was marked by very speedy and relatively um, a consensus-driven approach whereby you saw the federal government, the subnationals, and the private sector to COVID come together and um, achieve some form of partnership. Um, we saw our nation for the first time demonstrate an ability to pull together during a period of crisis. What did not have a consensus, however, was both the fiscal and monetary policies that were put in place. It did not have the aggregate consensus in terms of what should be done. And this is because of the existing vulnerabilities that were in the system prior to when the COVID hit us. 
we have uh, received an unfair handshake, but then we had our own crisis beforehand. I, I recall the minister talking about the technical uh, recession um, and how we have um, analysts predicted that we would have a fairly better one, which came out at 3.62, minus 3.62. But that belies the, the real substance of the real matter, because the country was in a stagflation already. If you were in a stagflation and then you just had two quarters of uh, uh, poor growth, that's just numbers. But the reality of the problem is felt in the household disposable incomes. It's felt in how businesses run the whole uh, uh, gamut of activities. So what we hope we could do is how to address what I call the perfect storm. And what do I mean by the perfect storm? The perfect storm is where you have economic crisis, social crisis, uh, governance crisis, political crisis, all coming together to form an interplay at a very critical junction in a nation's life. Um, the real challenge around that is that at this very junction, the Nigerian government has a very limited time. Um, we have a limited time because we haven't passed, uh, haven't put together budget 2021. This administration only has one more budget to put together. That is budget 2022. And if that is the case, we basically have between us about 24 months of active work to either reset, retool or refocus where we should go. We may not solve the problem, but we can lay the foundations under which we can have the conversations. And therefore, it is instructive that the first task for us as a nation is to stop digging. Um, let me make it very clear. We've dug ourselves a hole, we know. But we should stop digging. And the first attempt at that is to have a clearer idea of what tomorrow looks like. Because you cannot deal with market confidence, you cannot deal with investment, you cannot deal with even your citizen not having that little bit of inspiration and hope that tomorrow may see us find ourselves in a better place. And there is no matter what we do in terms of data, in terms of numbers, in terms of economic analysis, if we do not deal with those qualitative issues, therefore, we may not address it. And as such, I believe that um, some of the hanging fruits, like I mentioned earlier, are clear, and we hope it will come out in this conversation. And this is perhaps why the NESG thought that we make sure that this is the last conversation today so that nobody disturbs us with time. Well, I, at least I got your attention. But it's most importantly for us to uh, discuss on the path to recovery from a very singular position. How can we have a conversation that focuses on the promise that we seek rather than the things that we dislike about the country? The negativity often at times colors the importance of the message. So if we can focus on the country we seek, it will be better. And therefore, I believe this is how I would moderate the session on the path to recovery. There are six clear principles that we would like to achieve here. One, to discuss the trajectory of the post-COVID economic pathway and its target impact. Answer the question of what type of recovery we are expecting and what success will look like. Indeed, how will success be defined? Three, identify the inherent factors that will inhibit growth in key sectors of the Nigerian economy and how we intend to unlock them. Four, how can economic policy be retooled to reduce inequality and improve social mobility? That question would necessarily mean that we will be answering the question around um, what would be the new sources of economic growth. And it is important that uh, and where I work, we say in God we trust, 
Every other thing is data. And so rather than throw numbers around, let us just deal with the facts that we know. We are all Nigerians, we are in this, we are invested in it, so we can have that conversation. Fifth is that we would like to assess the role and interplay of the fiscal and monetary policies in creating the macroeconomic stability required to jumpstart this recovery. It is no gain saying the fact that we find a situation whereby we have run out of policy options in the monetary policy, and sometimes the lines are now either, either very, very blurred, or rather we do not understand the shifting roles between monetary and fiscal, and as such, it is important that we get that very clear. And lastly, to highlight public policy priorities that are required to inspire market confidence needed to drive investments and encourage the partnership with the private sector, which has formed the theme in all the conversations today. So without much ado, I would like to invite the comments of this esteemed panel. And um, Ari, I save you for the last, so you can take all the points in here and uh, put your thoughts together. And um, I will be starting with Dr. Doin Salami, not in any order, but in your position as the chairman of the Presidential Economic Advisory Council. First question, what is the trajectory of the post-COVID economic pathway and its impact? Right, um, thank you very much, um, chairman, I'm uh, sorry, moderator. Um, in terms of the post-COVID uh, economy, the pathway and its trajectory, if we'd been speaking, say, about four, six weeks ago, I'd have said to you, chances are bright that uh, had a good chance of a V-shaped recovery. But we have to be very clear about, you know, specifics. Move the mic closer. Sorry? Any better? Yes. Thank you. Now, we need to be very clear about a number of things. When you say recovery from a recession, we need to be careful. It's not just recovery as in positive growth. There has to be a level of recovery that becomes manifestly useful for this economy. If population is growing at 2.8%, between 2.8 and 3.2, then for people to feel the impact of recovery, you need the economy to grow at around 4, 5, preferably 6%. So if we are talking, therefore, about post-COVID recovery pathway, the best estimates that I have seen suggest that 2021, we might do about 1.7% if you look at the IMF. If you look at the federal government's budget, it's 3%. But as I said, I'd have taken that if we were speaking in September. But the destruction that ends the unfortunate events that ended the uh, protests mean that one of Nigeria's growth poles, which is Lagos, suffered immense damage. And so to that extent, I fear that whilst we will doubtless grow in 2021, that growth may not be anywhere near the kind of numbers that would make meaningful impact on unemployment in particular. And I think that for me, 
there are a couple of things that we need to deal with. We need to deal with unemployment. We need to deal with inflation very, very quickly. Well, I, I, I will get to more specifics with you on that. Uh, let me quickly move on to the Honorable Minister. Uh, you just had Doreen talk about uh, meaningful recovery. And we've seen uh, a rash of uh, policies put together in terms of um, some fiscal policies, um, some uh, new decisions around tax. What are the critical stimulus arrangements the federal government of Nigeria is putting in place to reverse, force the decline, and two, to, uh, to create what Doyen described as meaningful recovery? Well, thank you very much. Um... These are, without doubt, very difficult times for Nigeria as it is for other countries. And also, having technically gone into recession um, means that, first of all, we have to target growth and then expedite that growth. And then it's compounded by the level of unemployment and the, the NSAS crisis that has caused not only a lot of disruption, uh, disruption, but will greatly impact investments coming into Nigeria because investors will not be concerned about coming to put up assets in Nigeria only for them to perhaps be affected by the kind of violence that we saw. But having said that, we're still very much optimistic that the economy will recover quite quickly from recession and uh, be on its way to part of growth. We projected before has happened that the growth will be at 3%. But we have to do a review now to see whether that will still hold because that's a very significant uh, event that, that has happened. But still, we will uh, go back to growth but to make the growth meaningful, like Chairman um, uh, PAC has said, is we have to make sure that people are employed and the negative uh, human development indexes that we have improve significantly for the difference to be felt. So before this recession and before the COVID, the economy has been growing. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Revoid. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Three years of consistent growth. A slow growth, but positive trajectory. It was consistently upward growth. But the growth still was not felt. People were still not feeling the impact of what uh, government was doing. Inflation started inching up around August this year. After it had come down to about 11.5%, it started inching up, and now we're at 16%. So there's food inflation. And for us to be able to address the issue of inflation, because when you have food costs, food prices uh, rising, government needs to address it quickly. And that's why in the finance bill, the draft finance bill 2020, we made some provisions targeted are reducing the cost of transportation because our review indicates that the 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 the, the most significant in, input into the inflation is actually transportation cost so while in the earlier part of the day there were discussions around how it will affect the the, the industry government has to look at the industry but it also has to look at the impact on the lives of people and our assessment is that we need at least this 12 month of providing that relief so that more trucks come into the country and there are more passenger mass transit vehicles to help ease the movement of goods and services and that should bring down the cost of transportation that will have an impact or positive impact on food inflation. Every government's responsibility is first of all to ensure that uh, the welfare of the people first even as you have to look out for businesses and wanting those businesses. So it's not, it's not an easy decision to make, but we did a number of analysis, and our um, conclusion is it is important to reduce the cost of transportation because that will have a greater impact on the, on the lives of the citizens. Thank you. I'll be doing a further drilling down to those answers of yours. Um, there are two fold questions arising from what Dr. Salami and the Honorable Minister said. One is that you do not go into a solution with the same mindset with which the problem itself was created. We hold that thought on one hand. The second point is that the narrative that the NSAS problem in between October and November was such significant enough to alter the trajectory of the economy of Nigeria I would like for you to expand on that because, i.e., economic analysis has always suggested that vulnerability assessments of an economy should have allowed you to understand that to what degree can certain actions really derail an economy. We can understand that COVID-19 has both external factors in it that impacted both earnings and income. But the local one, and of what severity is that? Like I said, two thoughts to those responses before we go into the deeper question. Well, I think that um, the impact of NSAS would have to be um, analytically established. Um, I think that intuitively people would say 
that um, it has a tendency to affect um, economic activities. For example, people can decide that um, certain uh, investment choices that they would have made, they would do it differently because they think that the country is unstable. So that perception of instability would be there. But boardrooms haven't yet gotten to that point where they're determining those kinds of decisions within a space of one month, right? So we're about one month into NSAS. Um, and also because we already had shrinking um, attraction uh, of um, our country for uh, foreign investment anyway. We had reduced the extent of foreign investment coming into our destination by as much as a factor of three. So that was not NSAS. So it shifts the conversation into what were we not doing well before this exogenous shock of the COVID-19? Nobody should argue whether COVID-19 has had an impact on our economy. It has had an impact uh, because, you know, look, it channels through the most significant source of foreign exchange earning, export revenue, as well as public budget, right? That's what oil does for us. Oil is significant in our export earning. Oil is significant in our foreign exchange earning. <laughs> one is about 87%, one is almost 93%. Uh, and then public budget, between 70 to 80%, depending on what you're counting. So it is significant. And the global recession basically threw us into the same kind of volatility we always suffer. You know, so here we are as a country, always crying whenever something happens in the global economy as far as oil is concerned. And so the, the question we should be asking ourselves is, how is it that um, accidents that were foretold happen to us all the time? It's, it's a very important question to ask because then it helps us to take ownership of our problems. Because it is said that until you take ownership of a problem, you can't solve it. If you keep deflecting a problem, it won't be solved. So what are the three things that I see as a path to recovery? Because already, Madam Minister, you're right to say that growth had come back. But I wouldn't celebrate the level of growth that had come back after the 2016 recession. You're taking cremated benefits as it comes. It would, you know, because you see, 2016 recession was an incredible opportunity for us to gain consensus toward the most radical sets of reform. You know, when people are in crisis, that's when you can build consensus and say, guys, mm -hmm. we've got to do some really tough stuff here. And, you know, get people to candidly agree on the basis of evidence. You know, I mean, it, you see, the thing about economic management is that you can't wing it. You know, you can't wing economic management. When you are running an economy well, it tells. When an economy is not being run well, it also tells. You, you, can't, you can't sort of say, I'm running it well, however, certain things are not happening. Take, for example, three things are important. You need whatever number of things you lay out on the table concerning economic management. You can bring them under, under three broad categories. You can bring them under 
sound economic policies or sound policies in general, you can bring them under strong institutions. You can bring them under sensible priorities of public investment that become a magnet for private investment. These three things are struggling. They were struggling in our country in economic management. Often, the intention of government goes in this direction, but when you're looking for the policy that interprets the intention, it's going south. So, what would we do differently? Number one, if we took something like sound economic policies, we really need to, as a country, determine what economic philosophy underpins the way that private sector and government play their roles. Are we a country that has made peace with the fact that even a communist China ultimately understood the functions of the market and really gave a basis for the market to function? You're going into the policy uh, framework, which I'll come back to you. <laughs> let, me, let me hold you there before we go to the policy framework, before we get back to it. All right. Can I have Ari on the line now? Um, Ari, um, here's the paradox of poverty that confronts Nigeria. Uh, the paradox of poverty. Uh, in the last few weeks, the Nigerian Stock Exchange has released its uh, quarterly returns. And everything has been on the upward drive. If the economy is so bad, how come those companies are doing extremely so well? But yet, on the same flip side, you find that disposable household income is going southwards at the same time. That contradiction itself, I'm hoping you can help explain it to us. And also, can you clarify what type of recovery is IMF looking at that Nigeria should be expecting? And what would success look like for us in Nigeria? Well, thank you very much for this invitation. On behalf of the Monetary International Monetary Fund, let me thank you, the organizers. It's a pleasure to be in this plenary with you, listening to, to all these important contributions. I hope you can hear me well. Yes, um, we can. All right. So, uh, you know, let me start by saying that Nigeria is not alone uh, uh, in the in suffering the impact of this shock. This shock is a global shock, unprecedented in the, in the magnitude, and many countries are suffering. And, it, and it's hard for policymakers to counteract uh, the, the impact of such a negative shock, you know? Uh, lockdowns, and in specifically for Nigeria, the declining oil prices. You know? So I think in this connection, there is, it's important also to praise uh, the authorities for uh, taking some commendable, uh, timely measures to try to counter the, the impact of, of the pandemic in lives and livelihoods. Uh, it has uh, most likely saved lives and, and it's not an easy situation. No? Uh, and with risks still there for a second wave, uh, amid some good news also on vaccine development, uh, I think that this summit and this discussion uh, brings us an opportunity to, to uh, reflect and, uh, and, and, and think about how the resilience of the Nigerian economy could be strengthened to face such external shocks. Because it's right, and the panelists have mentioned, 
that shocks will keep coming. And what really is critical is what kind of policy setting can be in place that Nigeria will eventually become more resilient in fighting the shocks, whatever shocks that might be. Uh, oil prices, pandemics, natural, uh, 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 natural problems, climate changes, and there are so many of them, no? So I think this is an important reflection. The way we see uh, is that a fundamental policy reset that embraces broad market and exchange rate reforms uh, are need, is needed uh, to address what we consider are recurrent balance of payments, pressures on Nigeria. And this will help, in our view, alter long-running uh, subpar growth. Uh, we see five priorities for Nigeria, and I hope you give me a little bit of time to, to, to get into uh, in each one of them, but we can come back to them. So let me at least mention the five policy priorities. The first one is exchange rate policy to allow greater flexibility and the unification of the various windows, the, 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 the framework of exchange rate policies in Nigeria uh, should be changed uh, to facilitate transactions and uh, market development and uh, availability and access to foreign exchange. Uh, on fiscal policy, we see that revenue is still the, perhaps the main uh, challenge here. Nigeria has, uh, uh, as a share of GDP, one of the lowest, among the lowest revenue to GDP ratios in the world. Uh, certainly, uh, we see better revenue administration and uh, measures should be implemented to increase the tax base, to remove some of the uh, leakages in the tax system and that more uh, sectors of the economy can participate in paying taxes. Uh, tax rates are also not as high as in other countries, but you know, raising uh, tax, uh, ta tax rates uh, at a moment that the, eco the economy is weak is probably not a good idea. So once the recovery, take, recovery takes root, probably we see space for raising tax rates also closer to some of, 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 of uh, countries that uh, are neighboring uh, Nigeria and, and low income and developing countries, emerging economies rates, no? Uh, so, so these are, to me, that would be the most important in the, in the fiscal policy area at the moment. Of course, that will allow the authorities, the government to spend more and more wisely, uh, perhaps, uh, in some sectors that are uh, are in need of additional uh, effort. Just to mention some are uh, investment, infrastructure investment projects that are, are needed to raise productivity, but also human capital, health and education. So with limited fiscal space, it becomes very difficult. So mobilizing revenues is essential for a stable source of funding for those type of spending. No? Then monetary policy, and here is the coordination between fiscal and monetary policy. For the monetary policy, we really think that the primacy of price stability is the critical thing. I mean, central banks typically prioritize 
low and stable inflation as their top priority. This is hard enough to achieve. Uh, uh, other goals can be achieved through cooperation with other institutions. But uh, we see maintaining low and stable inflation as a top priority also because inflation, among all taxes that we know, is probably the most regressive of taxes. The poor pay the highest share of that tax because the richer they can protect themselves with some indexation with some uh, financial sector uh, banking system uh, opportunities and the the, 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 the the most the poorest really don't that particularly don't have financial inclusive uh, inclusiveness suffer the most and pay the highest price for that Ari. then the third pillar okay the third yeah, run, run maybe we the can three pillars, run the, yeah. mention the three pillars for me because I want to go to another questions and then allow yeah to... exchange rate policy fiscal policy monetary policy resetting the banking sector uh, should contribute more of course to intermediation uh, uh, so uh, there has been efforts there but it's important to maintain financial stability so that they can uh, promote uh, uh, more intermediation. Mm -hmm. Uh, there have been good efforts and good results on financial inclusion. The central bank has been doing this. This certainly should continue. Okay. Finally, on structural policies, which is our fifth pillar, uh, promoting diversification, employment, particularly on the youth, would be very important. Here we see a big agenda of less inward policies, but more uh, uh, external-oriented policies, lifting trade restrictions, promoting competition, promoting a good business environment, human capital development, infrastructure, everything to raise competitiveness okay. and productivity. Okay. I'll stop here. I take. I took a long time. Sorry. You did take a long time, Ari. Um, so <laughs> I allow, allowed you because um, that means you've taken the second part of your own questions already, uh, which basically means that I want to go into the policy issue right now. Um, we can all appear very smart describing the problems, but we can describe it from where we see it from. Now, since everyone has seen, I have a former minister here who has worked in a different regime. I have the current minister of finance here, who is also in charge of national planning and budgets as well. And I have you overseeing the linkage between the private sector and in there. So let's talk policy straight away. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
Chumba. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and I already mentioned five major things, one of which was only monetary policy was just one of them. The rest were fiscal, right? But I mean, two were fiscal, the rest were structural. And so if you have to define it really well, you have structural, you have the fiscal and monetary in its first place. The country has used the CBN up to now as a kind of economic ombudsman, as such that the role of the CBN in an economy, not just Nigeria CBN, generally, after the global financial crisis, we've seen an increase in the role of the central bank. In actual fact, I proceed that the central banks have been choosing winners and losers in an economy since 2010 of the global financial crisis. But that of Nigeria has taken a different turn. Having exhausted all these traditional monetary bullets, you then find a situation whereby in order to get things done, a combination of uh, expediency and um, some level of the structural issues have found the blurring of lines. And I think we should just deal with that big elephant in the room. And this is not a question to one person, it is to every single member of this distinguished panel. What are the policies we are actually targeting? And Nigerians and distinguished members in this audience would like to know that would offer hope and then impact on the economy in 2021, 2022. What are those policies? And you can mention them from many of the three strands I mentioned, structural, fiscal, and monetary. I'll start with Dr. Doyin, and move over to the Honorable Minister, and then Dr. Ezekwesle. Then you can talk about those issues you wanted to talk about. Dr. Salami. All right. Um, I think to begin with, policymakers must understand that it is easy to undermine confidence in policy, but very difficult to recover that confidence. In my view, where we are, and I think Ari mentioned quite a number of things, and I have said this before, and I will say it again, that essentially what Nigeria has done is to move from gradually drifting to a market economy essentially into an allocation economy at the moment. Right now, and by the way, this is perhaps nothing new. If you look at Nigeria's history of policy making over the last 30, 40 years, what has typically happened is that a shock from outside, in most other countries, a shock from outside, the government keeps the shock in. In Nigeria, you shift the shock into the private sector. And so, unfortunately, in therefore my view, whenever there's a shock from outside, Nigeria shutters down and waits until slightly better conditions exist. Then we try and say, okay, so where do we go? Now, there are a couple of things. Ari's made the point about exchange rate policy, and I think that is something that is right now, in my view, trite. Why? Look. People say, if you allow the market rates to be uh, fused, to have some clarity about how exchange rate policy is determined, oh, it's going to lead to a devaluation of the currency, 
which is going to lead to further inflation, blah, blah, blah. Let's talk to the facts. 1980, 100,000 Naira bought you $200,000. Today, 100,000 Naira buys you $230. And this is in a country that we have consistently, the leaderships of this country have consistently angled after a strong currency. So if in a 40-year time frame, you have seen devaluations of this magnitude, yet we've been trying to keep the currency meaningful, then can't we actually think of doing something else? And I go back, China in 1980 or 83, Nigeria's income per head was double that of China's. Today, China is five times the size of Nigeria's income per head. Now, look at what we've done. We've never created a scenario where exporters, internal, in, in, internal producers are clear about a focused and, you know, well-articulated direction that says, look, what we are going to try and do in order to include, sorry, increase productivity, increase output, thereby increasing employment, is to use currency policy to skew, to manage prices in an incentive-driven way. So for me, if we've managed over the years, not just now, but in the past, to use our exchange rate policy to confuse and you know, make a rather a mess of a, 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 a whole host of stuff. That's the first thing. Um, Dr. Mrs. Obie-Ezekwesidi uh, you know, Obie made the point earlier about investment. Let it be clear. Nigeria is a capital deficient country that needs a heck of a lot of investment. I was looking at the numbers yesterday. As of the end of last month, 17 point something trillion dollars was invested in negative yield assets. Think about our own plan. This is not imposed by anybody, IMF or anybody. Our own homegrown plan. The infrastructure master plan. The industrial revolution master plan. All of these require investment. If you take, just take the infrastructure one. Ari spoke about infrastructure. $100 billion a year for three decades is what Nigeria needs to put on the table. Add the entire budget of Nigeria's governments, all of them, federal 36 states, it's about $60 billion. So even if they spent all their money on infrastructure alone, they ain't getting anywhere. And so we've got to come back to that point about if this economy is going to grow meaningfully. And I go back to that point, meaningfully. If this econ and I see no reason why the Nigerian economy is going to say it cannot grow 6, 7, 8%. I honestly don't see the reason. But it needs investment. And if it's going to get investment, we are now talking about private investment. We do not treat private investors. Look, the way we treat private investors, forgive me, does not engender confidence. A couple of weeks ago, there was a policy. Anybody who is importing cannot essentially use third-party import sources. Then, this week, I'm told, that's somersault. Now, you can't keep doing this for Christ's sake. 
I, look, the point is very clear. We cannot say 55% unemployment and underemployment combined. You see, these things increasingly don't make sense unless we understand that this is what really does affect our people. And so for me, you speak about what policies do we, we need. Policies that engender confidence about our direction. Policies that really understand where the world is going. I'm looking at some mm. of our policies and I'm like, really? Does this actually align with where the world is going? So let me put in here. In a situation where you have a global liquidity glut, yes. as it were, what has been the challenge in Nigeria being able to attract investment? I, I have my own suspicion. Would you bring your money here? I, I don't have enough. No, no, it's a question. I don't would have you enough. bring, would anybody, look, why would you bring your money? Let uh, us be... You should direct the question to the Honorable Minister. No, she's not in charge of the central bank, is she? You see, we need to be very clear because there is no point us saying, oh, we want investment, we want investment, we want investment. The key question is, have we created the environment that investors can trust, that investors can believe in, on a big, you see, nobody makes investment decisions one year and then changes it next year. So you've got to have a time frame. And so for me, at the heart of it is, we've got to build confidence. confidence. Beyond that, we've got to build clarity about where we're going and how we want to get there. Beyond that, we've got to attract investment. It's, no, it's a no-brainer. Nigeria needs a massive amount of investment. But let me probably end this portion of my contribution on, on one you know, important note. When you look at the poverty numbers, you don't need to be a genius to figure out that one of the key areas where poverty really is endemic is in agriculture. And when you look at the numbers, just look at the growth numbers it's now becoming important that managing, for example, post-harvest losses might actually be one of the easier, more immediately effective ways by which you manage. So pro we produce, in some cases, we lose as much as 60% of what we produce in harvest losses. Now, imagine if you saved that, the farmers would get a higher level of income, and imagine the importance of that flow for those areas. And so for me, it's the, the policy agenda is not that difficult. The imperatives are very easy to understand, but the key question is that I think um, uh, Dr. Ezekwesili had asked that question. Do we as a country, do we as an elite, have we got an elite consensus about where Nigeria's policy framework should really hang. When we get that, then we should not be, ha if we had that, we should not be having this kind of conversation. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I'm sure I would, um, we'll come back to you, but uh, permit me to allow the Honorable Minister share the perspective on those policies um, that she believes uh, we need to put in place. Um, and I hope while she's saying that I may chip in one or two. In the 2000 and, um, 
2020 budget, I think it was also in the 2019 budget, we had some expectations of revenue from privatization. But the goal of, um, should I call it, the analyst community has always never been about the revenue you earn from pri uh, privatization, but actually both the savings and the multiplier effect that comes from privatization of IDU, dead, or draining assets. Um, we conducted some research some time ago and we came up to about so, about 400 of such assets in this country that can release one. So if you're talking about the policies, I hope you can talk about, mention something about privatization. And secondly, can you just mention uh, how it is possible that knowing fully well that we can release no less than $20 billion from passing the PIB, we have not been able to move towards that direction. Well, thank you very much, uh, moderator. Let me start by the broad policy that Mr. President markets. He um, had uh, made a commitment to have his administration work towards removing up to 100 million Nigerians out of poverty over a period of 10 years. So it's just, a, it sounds like a simple statement, but there's a lot that needs to be done in different sectors of the economy for that to happen. In the first and the second tenor of the president, he's been providing a lot of support and attention to agriculture. Why agriculture? Because the largest proportion of Nigerians, their main occupation is farming, and most of it isn't farming. And um, the program was designed to be able to support smallholder farmers with financing so that they can increase their productivity. So the Anchor Borough program was targeted at smallholder farmers, just as with large and medium, uh, large and medium scale farmers as well. And that has helped to um, include, increase agricultural productivity to the extent that when COVID-19 happened and there was total lockdown, there were no opportunities for quite some time to move goods in and out of the country. If we didn't have security, food security, Nigeria would have been in a very large problem. So whatever we say, at least we're able to feed ourselves. And um, we have to do more, like uh, Dr. Adwin Salami has said, to encourage more people to go back to farm, but also to maximize the output that comes from those farms. So the, the issue of food service losses is addressed in the economic sustainability plan. One of the main factors that results in the uh, loss of uh, produce from the farm is the inability of farmers to be able to move their goods from farms to market. So a major component of the economic sustainability plan is providing roads, rural access roads, to enable farmers move their goods from farms to market. And also in the draft finance bill, the provisions that have been made to reduce the, the import duties on trucks and mass transit buses is also targeted at being able to reduce the cost of transportation so that the cost, so that the farmers can move their goods to market at low cost. If we're able to do this successfully, we will be able to reduce the losses that happen 
and hopefully also the Minister of Agriculture is trying and uh, working with the Minister of Industry, Trade and Investment, trying to in incentivize private sector participants to provide storage warehouses for dry as well as wet products within the market so that more of this produce are saved from bean losses. In addition to that, we've just finished a program in partnership with the Brazilian government that is addressing the whole of the agricultural value. One of the main components of that is setting up production centers in... As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Each, at least one production center in every local government, depending on the choice of the produce from that local government that is most competitive. So that the farmers are able to add value to their products even before taking it to whether it's the international or the regional or, 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 for, or export. So uh, enhancing access to markets, enabling farmers to, to add value by processing, and supporting the farmers with financing to be able to increase their, their productivity. That's one major policy direction that the government is taking. Second policy direction is investing in infrastructure, major infrastructure that is meant to enhance the ease of doing business. Building roads, railway lines, our four major airports have been upgraded to international Sorry, Madam, Madam Minister. Under President, late President Yadwa, uh, there was a, there's a, the commission, the uh, ICRC, the Constitution Regulatory Commission, conducted an exercise whereby they costed all infrastructural needs in Nigeria and they broke them down into two, bankable and unbankable projects. Most of the projects currently being done right now some will fall under not bankable. Not bankable in the sense that it will require government collateral. Government does not have the fund, and it therefore needs to go out and fund them. It would be nice if we had a sense of what quantum 
maybe not specific number, what, what are we really doing to separate the two? Because some of them are good, they are needed, but we cannot provide a funding structure around them. Um, and over these years, I've grown up over five decades enough to have heard that we would build roads, we would build rails, we would build what. The stage we're in, if I may put the urgency of the now back again, and I think the urgency of the now came from the chairman of the NESG, so yeah. is that all these funds that are came from different countries, they are finding where to go. We still remain, and Ari will confirm that, Nigeria still remains an attractive, despite what my, my, my dear uh, chairman has said, some destination, some ways. If only from the government side, you would make some few decision tweaks. And that's what I'm hoping we could get from the conversation here. So, um, the Nigeria Infrastructure uh, Master Plan yes. that has been costed at requiring up to 10 billion US dollars per annum for 30 years to bridge the infrastructure deficit has also been analyzed and categorized into investments that government needs to make on its own, investments that government needs to make in partnership with the private sector, and investments that the private sector itself can optic. So this master plan is the basis in which the ICRC had made that assessment that you mentioned. We're currently in the process of reviewing it to be able to input the requirements of infrastructure into the, uh, the, the Nigeria Agenda 2050 uh, Nigeria Development Plan that we're, we're, we're now, we're now um, working, on. working on. The government has just taken a decision to set up an infraco, an infrastructure company. We're trying to encourage uh, idle funds, funds from uh, the, the pensions, for example, to be put into a vehicle that will enable Nigerians and the pension funds in, invest on a long-term basis into structured investment vehicles. This will not be driven by government. It will be private sector driven. It could be a combination of bonds or long-term bonds or direct investments into specific uh, chosen projects. And also, we're working with the subnational governments in building infrastructure using funds from the, from the private sector. We have a scheme that we call the Road Infrastructure Tax Credit Scheme that allows the private sector to use its funds to build a selected road, a road that they select themselves, and then recover their investment from um, a tax credits over, over a period of time. This, this is working. One good example of these roads is the uh, Apapa Road to the Ports, which has been built mm -hmm. by Dangote with his own funds under this tax credit scheme. So we continue to find uh, ways to support the private sector to use their own resources to build infrastructure that is needed to enhance business uh, in this country. Thank you very much, ma'am. Uh, Dr. Obi, um, I've read a couple of your works from uh, the African Economic Development Policy Initiative. 
And the reason why I beckoned on you to give us the time was to listen to Dr. Salami and also the Honorable Minister speak and to help us um, just um, focus us on the policies um, uh, we could talk about. And the Honorable Minister mentioned um, the emphasis on uh, social intervention. Um, there is a place for that, and it is also a very good thing uh, given the nature of our economy. One of the challenges, given your experience also with IMF as well, is that your understanding of the Nigerian economy, uh, as sometimes it's, um, it doesn't put into consideration uh, three or four factors. One, the fact that it's a mono-revenue-based economy in terms of how it's structured, not in its real terms. It's mostly uh, informal sector and mostly around MSMEs, really. And um, its rate of unemployment has consistently been on the upward trend and never going down. Now, the combination of which is misery index also has sustained a, a consistent climb forward. If we were to explain it for which ordinary Nigerians would uh, understand and permit the high valuing uh, terms we've used all this while, what would you think that those policies would be to just uh, see us uh, go in the right direction? And most importantly, how do we retool what is broken about how we make the policies? So, um, when you look at, if I wanted to speak, um, if I'm, let us assume that I am in the midst of the people in a rural community of Nigeria, I have no doubt that five to six out of 10 of them would have a telephone. Am I correct? Because we used to be a country that spent more than 200 billion naira at the time that it was convertible to something close enough to 150 billion dollars, right? On achieving 250,000 telephone lines because we had something called NITEL. And you recall that what NITEL did, we lived in Lagos then. The phone would ring in your house today and everybody would celebrate, right? But it would be for one week. The next week, it would ring in Chairman Aswe's house and it would be dead in your own house. And he would celebrate. And that would be for just one week because the next week, it would be at Doni Salami's house that it would ring. And yet we spent so much money in, in, in that infrastructure of 250,000 telephone lines. So when I'm speaking to these compatriots in my rural community, I would say to them that there, there is something called policy. And that every time if the right policy happens, there's a response that happens through the people for whom that policy is meaningful. So for example, when we decided to liberalize and deregulate everything in the telecom sector, 
We had people in government at that time who said, communication is the commanding height of the economy. It protects our national interest for us to have it under government control. But evidence proved that to be wrong because we deregulated, liberalized, did all the structural and institutional things that needed to be done. And today, I'm able to sit with this community and six out of every 10 of them has got a telephone line. Why? Because we're closer now to 100 million mobile telephones in the country. It was policy that did it because the simple definition of policy is solution to a problem. So take a sector like oil and gas sector. What are we doing? It's almost like there is a mindset that a president of this country has to sit atop the oil and gas sector. We know what the deregulation of that sector, the liberalization of that sector can do for this economy. By the way, the liberalization, the deregulation of the telecom sector made telecom to begin to contribute to our GDP. As a matter of fact, when you look at the two recessions that we have had, while other sectors of the economy were going in the negative direction of contribution to growth, telecom is, is holding us up. So imagine what would happen if we decided on a massive agenda of deregulation of the economy. We're talking about agriculture. Yes, honorable minister, Actually, I don't like calling honorable ministers because we're in a presidential system. When I was minister, I said, don't call me honorable nothing. I wasn't elected. I, you know, you have to be elected to have honorable to your name. So, Madam Minister, you know, what you said about agriculture is a good thing, the interventions you're doing there. But frankly speaking, agriculture production and productivity requires an intense set of policies that will not include the closure of borders. It would not include a, the banning of certain kinds of things that the farmers are going to need. Agriculture productivity has to include agribusiness just through the value chain of it. Because at every level of that value chain, opportunity for expansion is available. Take a sector like aviation. Ah, some of the people that even abused me in this country, maybe in this room. When they got into this fancy, we need to, you know, set up our national airline. I said, eh? National airline again? What is wrong with us? Like, we haven't recovered from the first journey. We want to embark on a second one for a flight of fancy. Look at what you do when you go investing in sectors that private money would find interesting and engage in efficiently like we saw in telecom. You are basically punishing your poor. Your poor need the slim resources that you've got. Your poor. They need the slim 
resources that we have should go to pro-poor investments. Those pro-poor investments matter because that's what lifts people to the place where they can engage in economic activities. What I see today is that we're struggling. We're struggling in terms of what my dear brother Doyin called economic clarity. We do not have an, a kind of an abiding faith. And I thought we had reasonably achieved it. Remember that this country was growing at an average of 6.5% per annum for almost a decade and a half. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What did we do right then that we're not doing now? We should ask ourselves. Look, I worry about the, the, this kind of, this kind of uh, what, what, what's the right English word to characterize what CBN has become in the country? It's a disaster that we should have this CBN be... The be all and end all of our economic life. This is not right. My, my uh, friend from the IMF, he's going to dance around a bit politically because he, you know, they don't want trouble, you know? But I, I have don't a, want, I don't want trouble too. Yeah, no, I want trouble. Because you see, the reason that I want trouble is that until we make trouble, we can't solve the problems. We, look, we sit here privileged. You know, there is, there's a fierce sense of urgency. It's not just urgency, or, you know, urgency of now. That sounds nice. It's fierce sense of urgency of not just now, but of how. The urgency of how. We're struggling. Look at us. Only 10% of the young people who enter the labor market annually, of the nearly two and a half to three million of them, would find anything that the ILO, International Labor Organization, defines as decent job. We should say to ourselves, where are the rest? What are they doing? And that means that if we don't expand opportunities of, for, in this economy by deregulating 
A lot of the times, public officials don't like deregulation. I remember when we did the, the, the one for the telecom sector. The then minister hated the economic team because it was the end of an era. It was the end of an era. Government officials, and you know, I know it, across Africa, they love where they can make the decisions because the decision point is a point of control and is a point of opportunity so for self, some... Is it self-interest or self-preservation? Se both. Okay. All right? So, but to the detriment of the rest of society, you cannot have and encourage a, prey, a, a predatory elite that basically subordinates the interest of the society to its own individual and narrow interest. That's why for me, if we took those three things and we said sound policies, and we've been elaborating on them, one you of the, ahead. you know, and we looked at institutions and we say this, the, 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 the strong institutions, we have to ask ourselves, what has happened to even the institutions that were well on their way to becoming solid? Most of them now have been turned upside down. Look at EFCC. Look at Bureau for Public Procurement. Look at even BPE. These are institutions. What has happened to them? You look at institutions, where do you build from? You build from the basic fundamentals of the rule of law. Now the rule of law has become the rule of the man who sees the president. How can you have that? It's not right. You look at the business environment and you know, I have to um, you know, acknowledge the effort that they have done in trying to meet some of those very basic you know, rules of business. So the, uh, the global ranking, uh, World Bank business ranking uh, uh, thing, they have, you know, sustained some of the actions there. But you know, even at the World Bank, we normally say to, to countries, it is the first level, it's a very superficial level. You have to go into sectoral rigidities and begin to remove those barriers. That's when you now open up an opportunity that the private sector can respond to. And then that third part where I talked of priority of investment. You know, think of this whole thing about public-private partnership and sub-national and national level. Honestly, we're not going to solve much of this problem until we have a political economy conversation around the structure of the nation state. The structure of the Nigerian state today benefits the politicians, but not the populace. And so a necessary conversation must happen in terms of how do we, you know, because I don't, I, I don't like people who just jump into the conversation on structure by saying structure, structure, structure. I love to think of it from the poor view of structure follows function. What's, what's the function we want to serve? I would say that the function that we want to serve is really productivity, 
and competitiveness of the Nigerian state, the Nigerian people, the Nigerian economy. If that be so, how do we organize ourselves in order that we can serve these two functions? How do we get higher productivity at every level of economic activity in our country? How do we get productivity from every individual in our country, including those who are going to depend on, by the way, another good thing that you've done, the social investment program. Like, you know, the fact that they've stayed, you know, consistent, consistent with it. I love that because you would always have poor and vulnerable people and policy must be available to attend to them. But if you make that your solution to the challenges of uh, unemployment and underemployment, you missed the boat. We've been doing palliative before palliative became the norm. So here's the thing, uh, just to your question about agriculture, and the Honorable Minister mentioned it. Uh, the agricultural sector uh, has received a significant amount of funding, but food inflation is still placing ahead at 16%, which means that for every naira we're spending, we're getting less mm -hmm. than it. And the recent quarter three statistics, so let's do a bit of data here. Um, the five sectors contributing about 75% to the GDP are as follows. One, agriculture, currently at 31%. Trade, 13.9% in spite of the border closure. Information and communication, 14%. Manufacturing, mining and querying, which includes, I believe, the oil and gas. The rest of the economy is struggling with the last 15%. So here's the whole idea. If the contribution to your GDP is about uh, 30 in agriculture, yet food inflation is high, there's a challenge there. In your information and communications, we are not having to spend as much money, but actually you are getting a lot out of it. Ditto in your entertainment and creative industry, yes. you are not spending as much money, you are getting a buck out of it. But the foundation of it all must sit around one question, and they all link together, and this is where we're going towards the final stage, so I could just take questions. Is well, can I just, for a second, that, that, that divergence, I think that's the right English word, yeah, the, the divergence. divergence between um, agriculture and the output that, Input we're getting, and yes, that we're getting out of it, you know, it, it also speaks to why we shouldn't be emphasizing the young should go to the farm. We're going to deploy our best talent to a sector that just requires certain kind of technique and methods to make it highly productive. We are currently dealing with low productivity agriculture. That's not where you send your demographic dividend to. You know, that's, that, that's so, so there, there's this divergence in the way that we're, we're sort of understanding these things. And, and, and what I worry about, Femi, is that, you know, empirical evidence helped a lot of countries to avoid a lot of pitfalls. So you don't, you don't have a situation where you disdain economic evidence. You, you do it at your own peril. Mm -hmm. Economic evidence has shown us across many countries that low productivity sectors are not, they're not going to yield much for you mm. until you do the things that make them productive. And the things that make them productive 
are a range of things that we were just talking about along the lines of sound policies. And I, I, I find it very painful that we sometimes are not deliberate in the way that we are attacking these problems. And sometimes we, I feel like we're thinking that maybe God is just going to be kind someday and help us. And then God is saying, can you guys just leave me alone? I'm on my way to Kenya. Their problem is beginning to look like yours and I need to stop it before they get to your st status, right? So, so we must do what we must do. There is something about countries playing with their first 11. Is Nigeria playing with its first 11? Let's ask ourselves. You, some of you have, you have uh, your fans of Man U and Arsenal. Once they go out to the pitch, are you not looking at the lineup? That's the first thing you're looking at. And the truth is, across the spectrum of public sector, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, ministerial level. I'm saying that we need to ask ourselves, what level of competence, what's the cumulative IQ of governance in our country today? As an Arsenal fan, um, I have learnt the ability, of goddess, I have learnt the principle of being a long-suffering um, <laughs> fan and never having too much expectations. But at some stage, you, you find it comes and then we go and it goes, a good analogy. But the real point, point I wanted to tie to that so that we can have some summary and conclusion and I can take questions is that there are two similarly unrelated things which you mentioned around agriculture, which is important. A country, I mentioned about hope and inspiration, a country that seeks that tomorrow we're going to be great cannot under any circumstances ignore what is happening to any of its demographics, especially the youth. In this case, every single economic analysis that we do, there's always one question I get from many international people. Is there a way we are going to take care of the human capital deficiency we are creating by keeping the educational structure we have, in which case students can be out of school for a whole academic session and hope we want to build a decent country? Is there not a clear indication that social deviancy would increase when those in the active age are not gainfully occupied? And the same mentality that makes sure that we say people should go to the farms is actually that same mentality that distorts the fact that the schools itself, the curriculum required to go in there are not exactly what the new market we are creating requires. So if we think that education is a separate conversation when we are discussing economy, it is not. It is a single line. And once we miss that fundamentals there, we miss everything. And that takes me to uh, 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 this question we never answered. Um, Madam Minister, well, let me go back to my usual thing. Honorable Minister, that's what I prefer calling you. <laughs> <fine as> well. <laughs> I actually like the sound of the Madam Minister. No, for consistency, let me stick with the Honorable Minister. <laughs> we, we did um, 
We made a marked achievement. No matter how late we start, we always seem to remember that we need to do what Bismarck Iwani always calls, that we play a football match and we end up scoring on both sides of the, of the field. We score a goal, then we score for the opponents as well. Mm. Uh, and so what we've done is this. We've had a border closure since Q3 2019. Has there been an assessment that confirms that the objectives there have been met? And if so, is it continuing? And if not, when do we likely see, need to see a change? Or do we have to wait for the external pressures from our ratification of ACTA to necessitate that change? Madam Minister. Well, um, so the short answer is yes, we have made an assessment. The president set up a committee, an interministerial committee, and we've made an assessment. And all the members of the committee agreed and are recommending to the president that it is time to open the borders that the objective, the objective has been met in the sense that we have been able over this couple of months to work together with our partners in a tripartite committee, do joint border patrols together, and reinforce the sanctity of the commitments that we made to, to each other. So each side has learned its lesson. Nigeria has been as affected as our partners in terms of uh, the businesses that we have in, in Nigeria as well. So we will be expecting that the borders will open very soon. The date will be decided by Mr. President and, and fixed. Thank you very much for the honesty. Um, I can take questions from the audience or from the international community. Is there any questions? There will be none. I've actually said there will be none. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Ike, I'll come to you. Oh, madam, I'm having to do a 360 degree. It'll come to you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Good evening. Um, my name is Ike Chioke. I'm a group managing director of Afri Invest, and I've listened with much intent uh, to this panel. It's been very, very enlightening, and I thank you all. Um, given where the Nigerian economy is now, given all the issues of poverty, given the fact that we're in recession again, given the population dynamics we are facing, if you have the, if you were to think of two things that can get us out of our quagmire, what would those be? How could we actually restart this economy? You know, I, and I think, I'm thinking of how do you get growth back into this economy? 
because that engine needs to start moving. We've been in reverse for far too long. Thank you. Uh, um, I, I was thinking we'll take it, but I, I like the tone of the question. I would, I would rather the, the, the EAC now. He should tell us. <laughs> well, uh, Chairman. No, no, no. As the EAC, my job is to lead a team that advises the president. So, point. <laughs> <laughs> but, right. No, but uh, I, I have absolutely, well, I have clarity about what needs to be done. And I think I have said this before, and forgive me that I repeat it. There are, I can say, two things. So, for me, two things. The first is macroeconomic stability. Without macroeconomic stability, we are going nowhere fast. And right now, we do not have macroeconomic stability. I what's, think, what you is, have to explain what yeah, that's a what lot of the that, times Nigerians is, don't quickly get it. You're not talking to those of us that... What is macro-stability? Now, when you talk about the stability of an economy, especially on its macro side, which is in the aggregate, essentially what you're saying are a set of characteristics. And there are three of them that are important. The first is growth in output, preferably consistently faster than population growth, because that is the only basis on which, and by the way, you can have growth, Nigeria has had growth without Job. creating jobs and without encouraging inclusiveness. And so, but what we do need, if you have no growth, certainly you're not going to create jobs, you're certainly not going to have inclusiveness. So the first characteristic, there are three characteristics of um, macro stability. The first, growth that is faster than population growth, but that is job creating and inclusive. That's the first. The second, costs must be well contained. In other words, inflation has got to be pressured. Nigeria has always, at least I remember from the days I was on the Monetary Policy Committee, single-digit inflation remains the target of Nigerian policy. But as it today, I think the last set of inflation numbers, 14.35% and rising. And so we need to reduce inflation. And the third thing is that we need an external balance that is manageable. One of the things that the data showed, you know, when you look at the numbers, in quarter two, which is the last available set of figures, our uh, current account deficit was actually more than what we borrowed from the IMF to staunch, uh, sorry, to staunch the hemorrhage that COVID-19 was going to cause. So, that, so when we talk about macro stability, you need growth, you need lower inflation, and you need external balance. That's the first thing. The second thing for me, which, can, which is not possible unless you achieve the first, is investment. And I will make that point again. Nigeria has to be about investment, investment, and more investment. And let us not kid ourselves. If anybody is here thinking that government is going to be the source of investable resources, sorry, 
ain't gonna happen not anytime soon perhaps in the future perhaps but as of today what are we looking at think about it oil prices 2021 if you look at NYMEX, which is the New York Mercantile Exchange, the few futures prices, it's somewhere, fluctuates somewhere between 41 and $44 a barrel. OPEC, we are constrained by what we can produce. So we are looking at 1.4 million barrels of crude oil. You add the condensates to it, takes us to about 1.7, 1.8 million. That's not going to significantly be different from what we are this year. And so if we're going to get the investable resources, you, we really do need to have a focus on asking the question, what will it take to be a, a destination that some of that $17 trillion of money that is invested in negative yield assets will come to Nigeria? Just imagine the transformation. $20 billion of foreign direct investment, not portfolio investment, direct investment. Imagine the transformation that rings on foreign exchange, on inflation, on productivity. At the heart of it for me is a very simple thing. Nigeria must increase the supply side of our economy. We don't do that, everything else. Where, you know where we are at today, and I thank Ike for this question, where we are at today, is the mentality of poverty. We are managing demand. Mm. We are trying to constrain demand. Whereas where we need to go is to expand supply. That is the only basis on which you're going to get jobs being created. So those are my two things. Macroeconomic stability, which I hope I have explained in a way that people can understand, but also the ability to consistently look for and get meaningful levels of investment. Thank you. Thank you. What is there to add, except to say that, in addition to macroeconomic stability and investments, we also need to make sure that we ensure the security and welfare of the people. Mm. Because that's the sole purpose of governance, to provide security and welfare of the life and properties of the citizens. So we, we have done well, as sometimes, and in other instances, not so well. And in providing the welfare of the people, we need to ensure that we invest or we continue to invest on the category of people that actually uh, need help. That is the poor and the vulnerable. Even as we try to work within government, work with subnational governments, and work with the region to enhance our security. And also recognizing the fact that the main basis where we have insecurity is actually a deficit of, uh, of, of development which can be eventually addressed if we're able to get investments and increase productivity and create more jobs. Thank you very much, Madam. Doctor. I, I, would, I would engage, I would embark on a massive deregulation of this economy, meaning that every sector, I'd simply say to myself, what are the critical prior actions that would open up that sector to private money. So 
aviation sector, I would massively prepare it. You know, I mean, think of the skies as though it were, you know, markets. And that policies can link up my skies. Right? Think of just the, the kind of transformation that <laughs> Togo, you know, I, as VP at the World Bank, I, I, I said to the Togolese president, there's not much you have going for you. But one thing you have going for you is that you can say, we're very close to Nigeria. That's its strategy. For a small country like Togo, without much going for it, we're very close to Nigeria. And therefore, we are an environment of sanity in terms of the doing business environment that we give to you. In terms of, for example, you saw what happened with, with uh, the airport, the aviation sector. It was a strategy that came out of we're very close to Nigeria. You know, take the agriculture sector, take the oil and gas sector, look at the sectors like housing, at sectors like even the agriculture in terms of agribusiness. Look at your manufacturing sector and identify some of the stranded opportunities that are not able to, to lift their heads. You have 70% informality of your economy because these are eking out a living. In the market segmentation, you can see, you get to the market, there are all kinds of products being produced in this country that you see. But these people are just eking out a living. They are operating on the margins. So on the fringes, that's the, that's the word. So you look at that and you say, how do I move my service sector? And by the way, don't, I, don't, I don't know, but I think service sector is as much as 50% in this country. But it's no. low productivity service sector. So I'm going to say to myself, how do I boost the productivity of this service sector? As I boost the productivity, I expand opportunities, I expand jobs. So deregulation, massive deregulation. I would, you see this oil, this petroleum sector? The day we truly deregulate petroleum sector, a lot of our current political class will not want to be president. That's the plain truth. Because that's, that's, that's going to be a quotable quote. You want to repeat that again? Oh, oh, yeah. The day we successfully deregulate a petroleum sector, a lot of people who have no business being leaders of this country will not run for office. Oil is the magnet that's attracting these people because a president sits atop this commodity that has just, you know, played us so badly as a people. So we need to deregulate that sector truly. The government is currently doing price fixing and they call it deregulation. I beg your pudding, you know? And then the, the second thing that would need uh, to be done is, why is it that the talent sectors are actually sectors of opportunity? Have you asked yourself that question? What are the talent sectors? The technology sector, have you seen our young people? with their technology sector. 
the innovation. They can play at any level. Bring it on. That's what our young people say to the world. That's why you have, is Mark Zuckerberg not invested in our, tele, in our technology sector in this country? He is. Now Jeff Bezos of Amazon has come. Who was the other one? Jack. Jack. You know, it so it's years. unbelievable. It's because this one, eh? You don't need to know anybody. The market tests what you produce. And our technology sector, our talent sector is, is just, it's just waiting. Can you imagine an enabling environment where you can have many of them that are making us so proud in that sector already? And then you look at the creative sector. It's also talent. I mean, you're not going to do federal quota with, 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 with films. With, with, with what you produce on the basis of your own creative excellence. So who is going to come and sit and tell you, oh, you must have somebody from... No. You no. set the online uh, alight, and um, before you set all of us alight, I'm going to go on to Ari. <laughs> Ari, are you there? Uh, if Ari is not there, what... Uh... I, 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 I am here. Okay, I am Ari, here Ari, Ari. Because you took too much more of my time earlier on, you wouldn't have too much. But please, can you just help us balance this? Can we have two things to get us out of the quagmire? Aiki Chioke of the Afri-Invest Group asked the most salient question. Mention two things we need to do to get out of the quagmire before I get back to Dr. Obi. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, I think I think Dr. Salami uh, said it all. I mean, the the importance of trying to restore macroeconomic stability is essential, uh, and uh, it was well explained what macro stability is. But maybe I, I'll give another way uh, here to explain. It's uh, restoring confidence. It's making sure that uh, uh, investors feel confident to invest uh, uh, in the economy, domestic and foreign investors. Uh, for that, you need predictability. So macro stability offers predictability. Uh, and uh, it reduces the volatility 
you know, you have growth, very high growth in one year, very low growth in other years. In the past five years, Nigeria has not even had, had a, positive, a very, very high growth. Uh, inflation is very volatile. It goes up, it goes down. The exchange rate is volatile despite efforts of keeping it uh, 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 stable. So all these uh, are critical parameters for the investment decision that is required for Nigeria to, to move ahead. So it needs to start and it needs to start as soon as possible. Uh, this doesn't have to wait. Structural reforms, they are more gradual in nature, but these things should actually start as soon as possible. Uh, uh, the things that we mentioned before to promote that uh, durable uh, 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 macro stability or economic stability. I will mention only one more point. I think that when we observe countries around the world, those countries who on, at good times accumulated savings, they were able to deploy those buffers when bad outcomes or bad shocks came. So the ability of countries to build fiscal buffers, to build monetary international reserves buffers and deploy them to act against the cycle. So when the economy is down, you need to be able to promote economic activity. When the economic is uh, under, uh, uh, sorry, uh, up, you need to save more and create the buffers that you need uh, at other times. To me, these are very important okay. characteristics of macroeconomic management that make countries resilient against economic macroeconomic shocks. And they may come from various sources, as I said before, but resilience will, uh, is it's critical to rely on buffers. And buffers you accumulate in good times. So we need to create the good times and the best way to do that is to start by restoring macro stability and attracting investors. Thank you very much. Um, uh, they are distinguished members of the audience. I see the former honorable Mr. Frank Wicke's hand up. I would have to uh, acknowledge and take your call, but I just want to make something very clear. I have exceeded my time limit. Uh, out of, uh, this is the kind of Nigeria we want to create, and I, I would therefore consider your silence as consent. Uh, not to exceed it, but to allow the honorable, uh, former honorable minister have his comments and to, um, Take just one question from uh, the audience, just to balance it. I've seen a lady behind me has been trying to ask questions to balance it. And then allow you, uh, the panelists, to kindly just end this on a very objective note. And communicate not to the elite in this room, but to the Nigerians, average Nigerians out there, the message of hope. Not one of lies. I'm particular about that, of hope. That in the midst of the darkness, we can still see very clearly. It is quite important that we do that. And for that, there would there be a great service to our nation because that is the commonality that binds us all together. On that note, permit me, Honorable Minister, to allow the ladies speak first, and then I'll come to you. Thank you very much and um, congratulations to all the panelists. This has been very interesting. But I really have one question for Dr. Salami because it worries me. When you started speaking, you spoke about economic clarity and you were saying that we need to find that and find a trajectory. And I'm wondering what really is the mandate 
of the EAC, if not to provide that clarity on the economics of the country? Thank you. Thank you. Very good question. Very good question. <laughs> um, yes. Um, Mr. Frankwicke, yeah. Did I see No, no, no. There's a mic. Uh, we are the NESG. We have everything covered. <laughs> That one is not from the NESG. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. I mean, it's uh, really been exciting listening to Madam Minister, of course, uh, um, Dr. Ezekwesili, and of course, Dr. Doreen Salami. And my take is that I'd like to suggest most respectfully that if you, all of you seem to have been consciously or appear to be walking on eggshells. And I would say this, about 10 years ago, at the time I was, at, I was still at the NESG, on the occasion of Nigeria's 50th independence anniversary, I argued very strenuously at a board meeting that we should not, that year, focus on any, any sector of our economy. And my reason was very simple. I submitted very strongly that I believe that the problem with Nigeria was not so much about the lack of knowledge about what should be done or the absence of policy documents or programmatic documents on what should be done to fix a problem. I submitted very strongly that we didn't really need to be convinced that, Niger that we needed power to power our economy, that we needed the education sector to function or even the social sector, the health sector to work, or that we needed infrastructure. And uh, thankfully, had support at the board at the time. And the theme for that year's summit was Nigeria at 50, the challenge of leadership and visionary, and uh, no, the challenge of visionary leadership and good governance. And we focused on it. And we went around and interviewed former presidents, former ministers, and it was very interesting, the kinds of responses we got. I've listened to everything you've said, the need for macroeconomic stability, the need for investment, the need for the focus on our talent sectors and everything. There's one important component, I believe, that you fail to speak to, and that is the role of leadership in all of this, the role of our politics in all of this, because we know that it's the quality of our leadership that has propelled either our progress or lack thereof for the last 60 years. Where we are today, to my mind, is based on the quality of leadership we've had across levels, not just at the federal level, but at the sub-national levels, at the local government levels. And we can look around the country today and see states where you have people who have the intellect, who have the exposure, who have the commitment and what they've done. We can also look at states where, you know, we couldn't say the same and we know what the situation is there. The statistics from the National Bureau of, Stati of uh, the, the, the figures from National Bureau of Statistics speak to these issues. And so please, uh, 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 Mr. Uh, 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 Chairman of uh, the EAC, Madam Minister, and of course, former President of the, Vice President of the World Bank, I'd like to have your views, however you know, brief they may be, on the role of leadership in the attainment of all the things you've said, in the interventions that Mr. Chioke asked that would need to be made to really get us out of this quagmire. Thank you. Thank you. Um, 
Um, without much further ado, let me hand over to the panelists. My job is easy. <laughs> right. Um, well, the first question, which I suppose was directly only for me, I'm not sure why, um, you know, says the EAC and providing economic clarity. Now, please understand what the EAC is. It's an advisory council to the president. Before today, I don't, not since the EAC was created in October last year, nobody would say, oh, yes, nobody would say, oh, you've seen me address press conferences or make public pronouncements. The EAC has been working, making recommendations to His Excellency the President, and that's the nature of the job. Now, I would argue that therein, the elements of trying to clarify stuff and trying to say this is where certain things should be, rearranging stuff. But as far as I am concerned, and as far as the mandate of the EAC is concerned, it is not to, we're not a legislatively established body. And so to that extent, we must have, uh, we must work within the mandate that we have been uh, uh, invited to discharge. So that, I hope that brings some clarity <laughs> to, the role, <laughs> to the role of the EAC. So we, issues come up, the president is very clear about the areas in which he wants advice. They've been set up and we have been providing the advice in that area. So you would have to go to my principal and ask him, are these people providing clarity? If we are not, then we are out of a job. Now, but on the other question, which is leadership, not only do I, in every sphere, I come from a business school you know, um, environment. I spent 20 years teaching in a business school. I run a small little company. You know, I, I, I do consulting. And one thing you learn very quickly, very early, is the importance of leaders. If we don't have the leadership capacity in place, then no matter the ideas, they just will not get implemented. And I think it was, um, I'm not sure if it was uh, Dr. Ezequisili or uh, Femi who said, oh, it's not about whether we have the knowledge or we, I, I don't think anybody has any doubts that we have a classic clarity about what the issues are. And I think we have quite a, you know, well-documented ideas. Now, what is important though, is that leadership and followership. So when people talk about leadership, in my view, Leadership comes dependent on what the followership also demands. They work together. Because without that, leaders get rather complacent, and that's the end of that matter. And so for me, leadership is important. Without it, we ain't going nowhere. But also, followership is very, there is a responsibility on followership. That means they must hold leaders to account. So as far as the direct question is concerned, Frank is correct. Leader, and I doubt if you will get a dissenting view, leadership is extremely important. 
Just your comments uh, before I ask the final question. Your comments. Leadership is everything. Well, who is the leader? It's not just the president. It's not the governor alone. It's not the minister. Exactly. There's the local government chairman. There's the traditional rulers. There's a leader in the home that is the father. Leadership is everywhere. So let's not be thinking of it's just the president that is a leader because leadership is a collective. And um, we have to look at how we can improve the whole of the collective, not improving one aspect of it. So the leadership of the president is very important. You can't even equate it to the leadership that we expect every other person in this country to express. <laughs> On the shoulders of the president lie the fate, you know, of millions and millions and millions of people. So the leadership at that national level, the leadership of the president of a country matters. We must get that right. So to that extent, I agree with Frank, but I thought Frank heard when I said, yeah, I gave the, yeah, I talked about leadership. I thought about it. I think he was putting you to say more, which <laughs> I do not have the time for. <laughs> I wouldn't fall for his bait, but, uh, yeah. but I would like to say that, you know, by not taking responsibility, what we do is that we actually let, we let off our political class so easily. We can't let them off easily. For goodness sake, if you get to the place where you want to lead us, it must be that you have something that you will do that would make a difference in our lives. So the idea the president is a leader and the commoner is a leader, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. The leadership that I want, the leadership that I want from the president is a different, entire, entirely different kind of leadership from what I want from the citizens. From the citizens, what I'm going to say to them is take responsibility. There is a role that you must play in society, there's a civic duty that you must play. Look, am I going to be telling these women who wake up every day eking out a living for their families? Do you see them in Lagos or even here in Abuja? Some of them wake up at 5.30. So when I'm talking now, I say, hey, oh, four, <laughs> you're not leading. I didn't elect them. I didn't elect the poor woman who is, in spite of all the challenges, trying to make a living, I didn't elect her. So what I can say to her is, I need you to know that even in your state that you are, you have a power that you haven't understood. And that power is in the office of the citizen. That there can be no president in this country without the expression of your mandate. And that because you occupy this office of the citizen, the legitimacy of anybody in our political offices depends on you. So you're more powerful than you can imagine. That's my conversation to em embolden the electorate to be powerful. But in terms of leadership, it belongs to those who come out and say, vote for me. There is a problem in the society and I want to solve it. When they fail to solve it, we must not mince words in telling them, this country is currently not being governed. Let's just tell ourselves the truth. There is an absence of governance 
And we all feel it. We feel it in the fact that the young people out there are wondering, I mean, look, they disrespect all of us, the elder generation. They do, the older generation. I, I'm not part of your generation. Well, well it's okay. I, look, I am comfortable, I am comfortable with their, with their anger. The reason I'm comfortable with it is that it actually becomes the, best, the basis of a resetting of society. If we managed their anger well, we would discover ourselves. So, so because of that, when they express their, their disaffection, I am, I am actually very okay with it because I'm saying, yes, mistakes have been made. And then I say to them, do you want to stay at the level of the anger or would you want to use the anger in a positive direction? Channel it in a way where you're saying, we're definitely going to build a different society from what we've been handed, you know? So for me, leadership at the end of the day has to be exercised by those that we have given a mandate to lead us and we should not allow them abdicate that responsibility. Thank you very much. Seven months after COVID um, came into place and we actually pulled together COVID on one side, the Governor's Forum on the others, and the Presidential Committee on the other side. The questions Nigerians would like to, would, would keep on asking every one of us here and around the economy is that how could we not turn this moment into a moment whereby we were able to boost the capacity for the health sector? That is the true test of leadership, not just in crisis, but in moments there. You can therefore apportion the blame appropriately, but the central theme is about, as a nation, we face the leadership challenge. Whoever is the president at the apex of it, uh, uh, when he takes the credit for when the sun comes out, he will take the blame when the clouds and the rain starts to fall. On that note, I would like to wrap up by asking you all, like I said, can you just try to help us find the stars in the darkness? Can you try, in some moment of inspiration, provide for us in a manner and in a message which the ordinary Nigerian can hear and say to them, tomorrow we'll find us in a better place. I will start in the same sequence, starting from a reverse sequence, starting from you, I'm going off to Dr. Salami, I'm going to Ari, and I'll give the Honorable Minister the last word. Dr. Isekwis. You know, two segments of our population give me the greatest hope for Nigeria the young people and the women. And these are the segments that have hitherto been excluded from the massive governance failure that has been created. Now, these two segments have become very vocal in demanding for a different society. I am praying that they would find their power that they would discover indeed how powerful they are because they are way more powerful than they imagine. The data shows that. If the young people and the women of this country decided to create a new Nigeria, it is entirely possible. I believe in the power of the indomitable spirit 
that I have seen amongst women entrepreneurs, women professionals, and what I have seen of the young people who for, you know, between these two classes, by the way, these two segments that I talked about, do you know the biggest asset they have? The fact that they are connected to the rest of the world. You see that technology, that tele telephone, they don't need to have a car. They just have that access. And with that access, the world has become their oyster. Imagine what would be if we fixed politics in this country. Thank you very much. Um, just a moment. Ari, again, just in case. Yes. Please, can we just have yeah. your closing thoughts in a, in a way that's quite optimistic and actually speaks to the path to recovery? Uh, I'll be brief. Uh, Nigeria has a huge potential. This is a very, very large country. Hard working, big population that uh, has a lot going uh, for, for them. Uh, my sense is that to unlock and unleash this huge potential, a policy resetting can be put in place. These are things that many countries uh, have gone under. Nigeria can go under those type of uh, uh, new ways of uh, policy, more outward looking, not so much inward looking, competitiveness. And this can be done, and we have many examples in the world of very successful achievements based on reformulating policies, uh, providing macro stability, attracting uh, investments uh, to create that inclusive growth that will benefit uh, all Nigerians. And I will just conclude to thanking very much everyone for this wonderful uh, discussion and to say that the IMF will be together with Nigeria. We are very close partners. We were there when emergency hit. Uh, through the pandemic and we will continue by investing in the institutions, providing training, technical assistance. We want to be together and we want to partner with Nigeria to unleash this huge potential that I'm sure will come in the future. So thank you very much for this. Thank you very much. Ari, stay by. Doctor. Right. Uh, thank you very much. Um, two things um, give me real hope that, as you say, yes, it's a bit it's dark at the moment, but it's not going to last. And these two things are, first and foremost, the opportunities that are out there globally that Nigeria can, must work towards being part of. No matter what we say, as I look around, I look at the evolution of technology, I look at the geopolitical dynamics that are beginning to play out, and I look at the, shall we say, as an economist, what the comparative advantages that Nigeria potentially has. And I am encouraged that, if only. But the second part, which further strengthens my if only thought, is, in my view, the amount of time that it is taking countries to achieve spectacular outcomes is actually shrinking. 
And what that speaks to, in my view, is that, you know, when I said, if only, and it then speaks to me to say, imagine how quickly we really could make tangible, irreversible progress in a way that somebody could stand back and look at Nigeria two years from now and wonder what happened that made her so positively uh, well regarded as an economic place to go. So for me, it's the opportunities that are out there are immense. Technology is doing all sorts of stuff. Uh, convergences around the world are doing. Geopolitics is doing all sorts of stuff. That means opportunities are there. But the other point is just how little, within how short a space of time, a country can start from zero and get to somewhere really good. Okay. Honorable Minister. Let me uh, thank everyone for being here today. It's really been very interesting and very rewarding for me. And just to reiterate the point of our leadership, for me, leadership is not about just the person that is at the top. We are a federation. We have three tiers of government. The states are independent autonomous units. And the local government tier is almost broken in a lot of places is completely broken. And that's where, that's the development level that reaches and touches the lives of the people. So while we talk about leaders, let us remember that leadership is at various levels. And, and I agree that leaders should be held responsible, but it should be leaders at every level. Let's not just say it's just that one person that is absolutely responsible. COVID came, brought a lot of challenges but it, it did not remove the opportunities that exist in our country. As a matter of fact, it presented to us new opportunities. Exactly. With COVID, we had an opportunity to make an assessment, national assessment to realize, and we realize how bad our health infrastructure is. And we are using this opportunity of COVID and the resources that have been mobilized from government, from the private sector, funds that we raise through multilateral institutions to improve our health institutions. So at the end of it, we will come out of COVID with a better healthcare system than we started out with. We will come out of COVID having invested more in digital facilities to enhance our educational system. Thank you very much. As a matter of uh, integrity and ethics, we ask people to send in questions I believe that I went through the questions in, in a way, not exactly in how it's written, but I need to do something. For those we may not have, I have to just mention their names because they stood with us all throughout the two hours where we extended the time, which I apologize for. Their names are Olu Ogufuora, Patrick Odegu, Unilever, Peter Bakare, um, Shegwadaju, Ayomedia Kim Dolier, and Samson, who all sent in questions which we touched on. For those who did not touch on, we would pass on to the NSG Secretariat and they will take care of that. Uh, it's been enlightening for me to sit amongst you giants. And I thank you for humbling yourself to the questions. I have no direct intention to put myself in harm's way. So I reserve all for the comments. Thank you very much. Thank you. He's an amazing moderator. Let's appreciate this moderator, ladies and gentlemen. Fantastic.
Mr. Chairman, please. Fantastic. Uh, I think if there's a World Cup for moderating, you should represent Nigeria. Amazing. Thank you for listening to our content today. Remember to subscribe to the NESG Radio. Follow us across all social media channels and visit our website www.nesgroup.org forward slash NESG Radio. NESG in the national interest. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.